Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Hope Church. Glad you're here. You can grab a seat. You know, it's sad not having some of the extra band people, but I like the space. I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but I like that it's there. Uh, my name's Ben, one of the pastors. Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn or tap your way to the gospel of Mark chapter 10, where today we're going to talk about money, as we do every single week here at Hope Church. It's the only thing we ever preach on. No, of course not. We haven't talked about it in, uh, as far as I can tell, a minute. But we got to, and we need to think about it well, because the scripture talks about it regularly, and the scripture talks about why it's so hard to talk about money. When you start bringing up something like money, you're bringing up something that people generally don't have a very healthy relationship with. Generally, and this may not be you, I hope it's not, but people put a lot too much on money. They look to it to be some satisfaction or at least a way to get comfort. They look at it as a way to be secure, a way to kind of ward off possible kind of sad or hard things that might come in your life. And as that happens, money becomes something more than it is. It becomes not just money, it becomes like your life. So then you show up at a church and the pastor starts talking about it, and it's like him asking for your life. It's like instead of saying, hey, this is what we're doing at Hope Church, this is what the Bible says about giving, we would like to invite you to give, that's a very casual, normal thing. But generally people hear it, and instead of hearing people say, hey, we, this is what we're going to do, and we'd love for you to uh, be involved financially, what they hear instead is, we need your life. It's like I'm saying, hey, listen, thank you for being here this morning. We'd love you to give just a little bit. Can I have a little bit of your liver? Hey, I'm glad you're here. I need a couple fingers. Can I have a couple of your fingers? And it's not that, but that's how it sounds because it's like your life. And again, I hope that's not you. Maybe not. But it can feel that way. As God says about money, as, as Christ said about money, it can become like your God. And you can't serve two gods. Jesus said you, you can't serve God and money. So today, rather than talking about a lot of strategy or numbers or percentages, I want us to get to the heart of where change happens, which is your heart. I want to get under the hood a little bit and look at your personal relationship with money. Because the Bible has a lot to say about idolatry. And Jesus houses this conversation around money in that language. So let's talk about money. Let's talk about cabbage. Let's talk about dough. Let's talk about frog skins. Let's talk about bones. Let's talk about honk. I googled colloquial name for money and it just kept going. Let's talk about lolly. A little bit of moolah. A little bit of scratch. We good? Okay. Got to keep it light on Money Day. Let's talk about what's under the hood. We're not trying to treat the sores on your skin. We're trying to heal you by treating the measles that create the sores. We, we're not just looking to modify your behavior when it comes to your finances. We're looking to modify your heart as you deal with the different things that tempt us away from trusting God. So let's look at Mark chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 17. It's a very famous story among the teachings of Jesus. And I don't know that I've ever heard it connected really closely with the way that we give, but 
uh, honestly, I, I think it works really, really well. So let's look at Mark chapter 10 and see what he says in verse 17. As Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, for some of us, that's the only time we'll ever do evangelism, is if somebody comes and kneels before us and says, Good person, what must I do to serve your God? Okay, that doesn't, rarely does that happen, but Jesus was so good, his life so compelling, that this person did. He came and he fell before him and said, Good teacher, rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to this guy, why do you call me good? Perceptive question. No one is good except God alone. So Jesus begins by asking this guy, how do you understand me? Who do you think that I am? He's already getting to the core question here. This guy needs to understand how he relates to God, and he wants to understand how to relate to God perfectly or better, or at least be honored for the way in which he is relating to God. So his, his question is about goodness, and Jesus zeroes in on that concept and says, what do you understand that to be? Meaning, and he says it by, by asking this question about himself, who do you think that I am? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, of course, Jesus knows that he's God, he knows that he's sinless. He's not asking this guy or, or trying to hide from the fact. But he's talking to this guy and addressing this guy's perception. So it continues. And Jesus starts laying out some commands. He says, you know the commandments. And he's referencing here the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses to give to the people of Israel. This is a very important, famous part of Scripture in the Old Testament where God does that. He gives the people his law. And he gives them all kinds of different stuff, but, but the Ten Commandments are written on stones by the finger of God. And Jesus starts quoting some of these Ten Commandments. He says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, this guy says back to Jesus, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Now we could argue with this guy on that point. We can immediately say to him, nah, no, you haven't. All right, I don't know your parents, but you go talk to them. You've definitely stolen something at some point. You've definitely been disobedient to your parents at some point. Maybe not in a capital sense. They actually had that in the Old Testament. If you were disobedient to your parents to a certain level, it was a capital offense. Whoo, they're teaching that in the bridge today. No, I'm just kidding. But that was a, a thing, and this guy probably didn't rise to that level of dishonoring his parents, but he did. At some point, of course, dishonor his parents. He's a person. But instead of quibbling with this guy on the way he understands the law, which was clearly important to Jesus, if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, he gets into the different laws that are given in this second table of the Ten Commandments, and he expands them out. So he clearly does not think this guy's right in what he says. But instead of quibbling, instead of arguing about what's less important, he goes to what's most important. Instead of looking at his surface activity and even understanding of himself, he's going to go deeper and say, okay, well, let's talk about your biggest problem. And he does that by saying, Jesus, looking at the man, loved him. We'll talk about that sentence in a minute, but it's just beautiful. He saw him and he knew him. And instead of scoffing at his pride, instead of 
dismissing him totally. Instead of feeling a challenge wherein Jesus is going to assert his own godliness and his own goodness, he sees this guy. And seeing him, oh, he loves him. So what he's about to say, whatever else he's going to say, whatever else it means, it's coming from a place of love. Important. He says to the man, you lack one thing then. Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. You can come and follow me. Now, if you've ever read this verse before, I think part of the reason that we don't understand this story is because as soon as you get to that sentence, you immediately go, okay, but that can't apply to everybody, right? Like, that's definitely not true, though, right? Not really sure what Jesus was saying to this guy, but he's definitely not saying that to me, though, right? Like, Christianity is not communism. Not everybody has to give everything they have to the lower classes and then just be, like, totally poor and dependent on the system, right? Like, Abraham was really wealthy in the Old Testament, and God loved him and gave him that wealth, right? Like immediately you start bringing out all of a sudden people who don't really know much about scripture have like in-depth exegetical arguments about why this can't apply to them, right? Well, okay, before you start bringing up your defenses about why this can't be a command, try to understand what's happening in the passage. What is Jesus saying to this guy? He's saying something incredibly important about the way we understand all of the commandments of God. It's really, it's really um, I don't think it was a trick question. I think it was something Jesus was inviting this guy into as he talked to him. But he starts with that second table of the Ten Commandments. If you ever have read the Ten Commandments, it starts differently than it kind of ends. It ends with some of this stuff that you think of as moral law. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't covet. Don't, don't bear false witness. Okay, great. But to get to those... You need to be able to understand and obey the first commandments. And that's what Jesus is doing. Again, he sees this man. He loves this man. He's not trying to get something from this man. He's trying to give something to this man. You have to understand that if you're going to obey anything God has to say about anything. It may feel like surgery. It may feel like he's, he's taken some fingers or a little bit of liver. But he's not trying to take from you. He's trying to give to you. He's telling this guy, break your idol and worship God. He's not telling him to get rid of all of his money. Yeah, of course, he is commanding that. But the reason he's commanding that to this guy is that he's saying, if you will follow me, you can't also follow an idol. Here's your idol. For this guy, it's not only his, his physical sort of like uh, financial riches, which he had. It says that as we'll continue. He was a wealthy dude. But he also had to get rid of his concept of his moral wealth. Like He thought that he was standing before God as righteous, as though he's going to stand before God in the judgment and God's going to be like, Wow! We've not seen one like you, front of the line. Like, get in there. That's what he kind of expected from God. He wanted to get in without needing forgiveness. He had to see both his moral sort of supposed riches and his physical riches, his financial riches, which he gave a lot of credibility to, as you're about to see. 
had to see instead that he, he couldn't have those and God. Something has to give. And here's why. It says in a, there's a great book called How People Change. Now, it's based on David Pallison's teaching, but it's written by Paul David Tripp and a guy named Tim Lane. And it's fantastic. It's a little, it's not like heavy or crazy. I mean, it's just, it takes a second to read it. But it's fantastic. We've gone through it as a church before. I would just encourage you, please get it, read it, read just parts of it, let it kind of get to you, and then you'll go through and read more of it. How people change. But in it, they describe this kind of conversation around what we do with the Ten Commandments. It says, the Bible says that my real problem isn't psychological, low self-esteem or unmet needs. My real problem is not social, bad relationships and influences. My real problem is not historical, my past, what's happened to me, or physiological, medical, my body. My real problem is something else. These are significant influences, not dismissing those things. We're just moving them out of the central place. They're not, they're significant influences, but my real problem is spiritual, my straying heart and my need for Christ. I have replaced Christ with something else, and as a consequence, my heart is hopeless and powerless. So you can't follow the Ten Commandments until you follow the first three commandments. A great way of summing that up is Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Lane and Trip continue. The reason we fail to keep commandments 4 through 10 is because we failed to keep the first three. If you break the first three commandments, the first three commandments are, don't have any other God before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. If you can't relate right to God, you can't relate rightly in any other way. Your thorny, sinful responses to life grow out of a heart that has defected to worship something else. Do you see why this is such a big deal? What you do with your wallet is indicative of what your heart has done with your God. What you do with the, the resources he gives you and the way in which you marshal and use those resources, it tells us something about the state of your heart. Now we got something way more important than Hope Church's budget. Now we're talking about something eternal. Something that matters for the community because you matter for our community, but it also matters intensely to you. God cares about your heart and he's jealous for your heart. He won't stand for another lover. What does it mean when it says that God is jealous? The Deuteronomy 6 continues and it talks about exactly what we're talking about. And so it's so perfect. So let's, let's keep it going. It says in verse 10, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, to give you. So the book of Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that fifth book of the, New, of the Old Testament, it goes through and it's a sermon at the very end of Moses' life. So Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, wait, 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. There we go. Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, they go through and they tell you all this stuff about what Moses did as God brings the people of Israel out of slavery and puts them out in the wilderness before they go into the promised land. Deuteronomy is a sermon that Moses preaches right as he's about to go home to Jesus. He's about to die, and he preaches this beautiful sermon. It's the whole book of Deuteronomy where he teaches the people, again, the law. And he's restating all of this, and he's saying, before you go into the promised land, before you get all this stuff, before he brings you into the land that he swore to you, with great and good cities you didn't build, and houses full of all good things you didn't fill, and cisterns you didn't dig, and vineyards and olive trees you didn't plant, and you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It... Uh, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you, for the Lord your God is in your midst. He is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. When we say jealous, we only have negative connotations of that word. Because when we say jealous, we usually mean envious. We kind of let those concepts overlap. And envy is not good. But envious, I want what you have, is kind of what we kind of mean sometimes when we say jealous. That's not what is being said here. Sometimes we mean suspicious. Suspicious that you're, you're coming into something that I have, that you're, you're coming into something that I want and I've already kind of in my head claimed. Well, that's actually a little bit closer to what we mean by it biblically. But what we mean by jealous biblically is this concept that what is mine is, is really mine. And I want what's best for what's mine. Rachel is my spouse. She's not my property, but she is my spouse. She's my spouse. And I'm not going to share her. She didn't volunteer at Hope Church, but she, if somebody else tries to like connect with her, somebody at work tries to, to get to know her, my heart will immediately be filled with jealousy. Because I want what's best for Rachel. I want what's best for me. I want us, and I want to protect us. That's a clear picture of what God is talking about when he talks about us and his jealous love of us. You can't go after another God. You can't. It's not what's best for you, and it's not what's best for this God who loves you. And so he's going to protect. He's going to do what's best to protect you. The love of God isn't something small, and it's not something weak. You you want God to love you, and people tell you that God loves you, and you get excited about that. You need to understand that you're reckoning with something that's way more powerful than the heat of the sun. That's way more intense. It's way more deep. Uh, Okay, C.S. Lewis, forgive me. Long quote, beautiful. In awful and surprising truth, we are the objects of God's love. You ask for a loving God, you have one. The great spirit you so lightly invoked, the Lord of terrible aspect, is present. And he's not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. He's not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate. He's not the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but he is the consuming fire himself, the love that made the worlds, persistent as the artist's love for his work, as despotic as a man's love for a dog, provident 
and venerable as a father's love for his child. Jealous, inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. There's a lot of vocabulary there. In a pinch, I could not tell you what exonerable means. <laughs> and I didn't look it up because I want to be able to say that honestly. I know there's a lot of vocabulary there. But it's also saying something really, really beautiful about the love of God. The things that we don't always think about when we sentimentalize the love of God. He's a jealous God. He's not going to allow you to go after something else. And for so many of you, that something else is money. This guy felt it. God's too jealous to let you go after other idols. He's not going to let you want to go back to Egypt where you become a slave and Pharaoh kills your sons. He's not going to let you go after Baal, Baal, this Old Testament idol, where you give yourself to ritual prostitution and then you put your children through the fire. And he's not going to leave you to yourself where you trap yourself with these ideas about your own glory and you strangle everything you should love, world, friends, spouse, kids, until they conform to this perfect standard that can't exist or you just crush them. He's not going to allow it. He's too jealous to let you live out that destruction. So instead, you need to come to him and see what love really is. You know, I said that when Jesus saw this guy, he loved him. You got to feel that. You got to understand that. Because you're not going to trust him to give up this other idol unless you know that he's good. Unless you know that, but okay, I know that he's God, but, but do I want him? Yeah, you should. He has a love for you that certainly outpaces even the incredible thing he asked of this rich young ruler. He said to this guy, you got to give up your idol and come and follow me. Listen, Jesus didn't ask that guy to give up anything more than Jesus gave up for that guy. Do you remember what we said in Philippians when we did that whole sermon series? It said in chapter 2, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The way Christ acted, the way he loved us, is supposed to be our understanding of love. It's supposed to be the way in which we understand and then express love. This Jesus, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who? Though he's in the form of God, didn't account equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He gave up everything. Yeah, he asked this guy, he commanded this guy to give up his idol that would destroy him in order to receive not only treasures in heaven, but Jesus and he wasn't asking this guy to do anything that Jesus hadn't himself done to a much greater degree. He emptied himself. The only reason that Jesus was even talking to this dude is because he left a king's throne. He left heaven itself. Oh, he emptied himself. That's the only reason you even know his name. And he didn't just empty himself into humanity. He emptied himself into death. His humanity he goes from heaven to earth. He doesn't just live as a king. He actually lives as a homeless guy for his ministry. And when he dies on the cross, he's so poor that they cast lots for what he has. You know what he has? A garment. 
The God of the universe died on a cross and his whole possessions at that moment were a garment. He became poor. And then he gives up even his life. He takes on himself our sin and dies in order to make a way for us to come to him. That's what love does. Every time you hear somebody talk to you about money, you think, okay, here they go. Here it comes. They want to take what's mine. They want to take what's mine. Do you understand that what Jesus is saying is that he has given you everything and that he really wants you? And that it's possible that that mindset, that concept, that something is yours, that you have, it, it might be the very thing that is stopping you from actually knowing and accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That having a couple of more bucks now, having a little bit more now, might be the way your heart continues to justify its idolatry until you actually lose not only your life and stuff, everybody dies, but heaven itself. That's what this guy did. Mark 10, 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Tragic. Avoidable and tragic. But before you shake your head, is that happening this morning? The same offer is being made to you today. Are you responding in the same way? I'm not asking you to sell your cars and house and give it to Hope Church. I'm asking you to examine your heart and ask yourself, what do I really love? How am I actually coming to God? Am I trying to come as a rich man? Yeah, you know, i got my faults, but i got a lot to bring to the table. And I'm going to come to him. He's going to be impressed with me, and we're going to deal with each other. Eh, maybe not equals, but certainly close. I'm not a beggar. Can't do it. Can't do it. J.C. Ryle says it really well in a book called Holiness. It's got a long sort of subtitle. But he says, would you be holy? Would you become a new creature? You must begin with Christ. You will do nothing at all and make no progress until you feel your sin and weakness and flee to him. He is the root and the beginning of all holiness. And the way to be holy is to come to him by faith and be joined to him. So have you. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, no, okay. I know that you've related to God in some way, but is that relation to God this, or is it seeing him as some sort of consultant? That's what the rich young ruler was kind of coming with. He was coming with his own righteousness, and he wanted Jesus to sort of step in, evaluate. You know, there's a tip of the hat to Jesus. Good teacher. Will you please tell me what I must do to inherit eternal life? Look, look at what I got. Examine the portfolio. And Jesus is going to go through and he's going to look at and say, well, you know, you could do a little better here. I don't know if you understood this passage well, but on the whole, is that how you look at Jesus? Do you come to him on your knees? Do you come to Jesus like a state farm agent? 
He's just there in case of emergencies. You're not hanging out at Thanksgiving. You don't even know his name, really. you got it on a paper in a drawer somewhere, and you can call him just in case you get hit by a car or you hit somebody else. Is that Jesus? If so, you've got other lovers that have crept into your heart. I don't, I don't think that you can say, based on what Jesus says to this guy, that you're a Christian. Get mad at me if you want to. Shoot the messenger. Based on Jesus' words. You say, okay, no, 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 I really am, Ben. Like, I know what you're saying, and I've heard all that, and, and yes, I really am a Christian. Okay, well, though, have other lovers crept into your heart? Does money have a, a foothold in your heart in a way that's it's kind of hard to think about? Because you've you know, giggled along with me, and you were like, oh, man, I hope there's no guests here today that are upset about this money talk, you know? Obviously, I'm not upset about it, but really, though. If I cornered you later and said, hey, man, what, what, what kind of giving have you been doing to Hope Church? Would you say that that's sacrificial? Would your hackles rise? Probably. I haven't done it, so I don't know what would happen to you. We don't do that at Hope, generally. But there's weeds that keep growing. How do you spray them? There's mold that keeps deteriorating. How do you get rid of it? There is a, a love of other things that keeps creeping into your heart. How do you break it? Well, you do the kinds of things God teaches you to do. Why did God have Israel tithe? Was it because he needed something? They were slaves who then lived in the wilderness. They weren't like a fat cow to try and get a bunch of money out of. Why did he have them tithe? Because he knew that they had to have their hearts broken in order to continually come back to him. It says in Mark 10, 23 to 25, after the guy leaves, that Jesus looks around and he says to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples are amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The point is, you have to do stuff that keeps your heart away from all these other lovers. Writing a check monthly, twice a month, helps you to do that. Now listen, again, as soon as I say that, the cynic in me thinks the cynic in you is saying, okay, here it comes. Put all the pretty language on it, quote all the smart people, but here's the bottom line. You really just want my liver. You really just want my life, my money. No, I want your soul. I want Jesus to have you and you to have him forever. He doesn't want to steal your, your precious like your golem. You've got this ring. He doesn't want to steal your precious. He wants to be your precious. Won't you let him? Listen, you need to get your finances in order. We'll help you. I'm not great with numbers or details, but there's enough idiot-proof products out there. The one that I use is called You Need a Budget. That it's possible, and it takes me maybe 20 minutes a week. It's not bad. And that gives me a clear picture of where our money's going so that I can have then a clear idea of how much of that needs to go out. 
I can help you with that. We can help you with that. Your community group has people in it that can help you with that. Won't you, though? It's not about swelling the coffers of Hope Church. It's about making sure that you avail yourself of everything God has given you to fight that urge to go and seek other lovers. It does become more about heaven and hell. So let's pray. And as we pray, just take a moment to get real serious about this thing. Is this you? Is it true? Is it possible that your heart has gone after something else than him? Lord God and Heavenly Father, please help us to see that we really do require the kind of self-assessment that says we're broken, we're sinful, and we're elated. We're over the moon that you would come to know us and give us your riches rather, Father, than thinking that we've got a lot to barter with and we're actually a little bit offended that somebody would ask us to give. Lord, I pray that you would look into our hearts and, and help us to see. Do we love you? Do we follow you? And if so, Lord, I pray that the, the, the way the health of Hope Church would explode out you would be glorified and your people would be blessed. Pray these things in your son's holy name.